So I want to take a moment now to thank the Digital Hub because they are the main sponsors for this season of InspireFest, the podcast. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. We find it great because of the number of companies that are here, the networking, the way that you can easily share ideas and meet for coffee, lots of people that are in the same industry as us. Hi, my name is Diego Solorzano. I'm the CEO of Square One. We are a web and mobile application development company, and we specialize in solutions for publishers and high traffic sites. You can find out more about Diego and lots of other innovators at thedigitalhub.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the last episode in the first season of InspireFest, the podcast. I can't believe we're at the last episode already. I mean, time flies when you're having fun talking to people. And of course, we had lots of fun talking to our final guest as well, Anne-Marie Chomchak. Anne-Marie is the UK editor of Mashable and she previously worked at the BBC and she in fact she when she was at the BBC she was one of the founders of BBC Trending which launched in 2013. It's funny how things change isn't it because 2013 doesn't sound that long ago but at the time BBC Trending started to look at what was breaking on social media and what were the stories there and that seems so commonplace today just a few years later but at the time it was really pioneering and Anne-Marie was really kind of out front and centre in that. As UK editor of Mashable, she's been involved in a lot of changes there, for instance, like their new Snapchat account, etc. So she's she's kind of got her finger on the pulse of connecting with different audiences through media. And it was great to catch up with her at InspireFest. My name is Anne-Marie Tomchak and I'm the UK editor for Mashable. Anne-Marie, you started your career in journalism in Dublin. Tell us about that. So I um, started in the RTE newsroom. I was doing a work placement after doing a master's in DCU. And I was there for uh, three months. And then after that little uh, short contract ended, I was literally like a bad smell that wouldn't go away. I kept pitching ideas to editors of Morning Ireland, News at One. If one said no to me, I'd go back to the other. Eventually I would get commissioned. And yes, eventually I started freelancing very regularly for them. And then uh, presenting the news on 2FM, writing the news bulletins for Anne Doyle on Radio One, and then working on uh, the news at one with Sean O'Rourke and with Morning Ireland so Cotton McQuillia and Anya Lola were, were the presenters of that show at the time so this is great an amazing foundation and an amazing training ground as well I would say uh, to get really high journalistic standards the RTE newsroom is absolutely world standard I would say uh, having worked there for almost six years and I still think like it's journalism stands up anywhere in the world with any other news outlet and you moved to the BBC then? Yeah, so I moved to London in 2010 and again, <laughs> like a bad smell. <laughs> I was very persistent and I just talked to everyone that I could over in London to, um, to just try to find out how on earth do I go about getting a job in media in London because it felt like a big bad world out there. Uh, I think that was, you know, back then, 2010, yes, social media was being used, but it wasn't really... Uh, being used as a news gathering tool or distribution tool to, to the degree that it is now. So um, I guess there would be different options and different approaches that you would take now. But at the time I talked to everyone and I eventually found out uh, that there was a 
jobs going in the BBC World newsroom um, at producer roles, which wasn't what I was doing at the time. At that time, I was working on air. But, you know, everyone has to start somewhere. And I had not worked in a live TV environment before, so I was literally willing to do anything. And uh, I got a producer job. And the rest is history. That was during the Arab Spring, uh, the tsunami in Japan. There were a lot of big news events. So it was a really great way to kind of uh, cut your crust and or earn your crust and figure it all out. You were involved with some really pioneering stuff in BBC, like BBC Trending. What was that about? So um, I'd been in the BBC since the end of 2010 and in 2013 I started doing a lot more work in the newsroom around mobile video, encouraging some of the presenters and the correspondents out in the field to publish video that they'd filmed on their mobile phones as additional content and to integrate that content then on social media sites uh, like our Facebook page or on Twitter and so on and so forth. So um, I was then approached by the commissioning editors uh, for BBC Global News Limited, which was one of the departments that had commissioned BBC Trending, uh, to pilot it. They asked me, could you come in and pilot this? They, they knew I was passionate about social media and video. And I was uh, presenting a, a slot live on BBC World News at the time. So I had this kind of combo of live presenting on TV with a bit of social media mixed in. And so they asked me, would I be interested in pioneering this new format, which would do original journalism using data analytics around hashtags and social media trends, delving into it further and then storytelling in an innovative way uh, on video for uh, an audience that was uh, the BBC audience, but across different places, across radio, across television, across online, across our social platforms. So uh, it was really fun. It was great, a great opportunity to go and use all of the rules that I knew about journalism, but then break loads of rules as well in terms of storytelling and just throw spaghetti at the wall. Um, I mean, I remember the pilots, they were absolutely hilarious. It was one where I was sitting in uh, the... Uh, BBC News Studio and one of the first videos we made was me sitting there like a news anchor but wearing like a, a whole range of different moustaches um, presenting as if it was the serious news bulletin but uh, it was a piece that we did about Movember which was the um, in the month of November where men grow their beards or moustaches to raise awareness about testicular cancer and we looked at, at why that uh, trend uh, was so big in Indonesia and we found that actually the reason people in Indonesia were talking about it so much was because there were all of these uh, click farms where they would get paid to actually paid per tweet. So like that was a little original angle that we did it on and I presented it as a news bulletin wearing my massive moustache. When you talk about the fast pace of it, because any one of us right this moment can capture a video, share a, a mm -hmm. post, amend a post, whatever. I've seen things that people have shared, I've probably even shared stuff myself that now when I think back, oh my God, that was fake news. I think we've all shared something that's been questionable at some point or another. I think yeah, the, the pace is, is one of the biggest distinctions and the difference now. The pace at which information is being distributed and moved around and how it can be manipulated, manipulated and also the different agents involved now as well. So in, in the past, the broadcast model or the print model of, of journalism was that the journalists put it out there and it was shared. But now there are all of these other agents at play now, including ourselves as individuals and readers who have a role to play in the distribution of that information. So we've all, we've all shared stuff that's been questionable at some time or another. It's what you do to try to inform yourself uh, and what you do uh, after you've learned that something is, is wrong. I think that's really important. And then there's a whole uh, list of different things you can be on the lookout for. 
uh, when you're about to share a story. I think, and this is, the, this is where fake news uh, spreads, where someone instinctively shares something that speaks to them and they just push the button, they share it, and they don't give it a second thought. So there's a few things. Um, look at the URL, look at the source. Where does this story come from? Um, look at the headline. Usually it'll be something hyperbolic, uh, you know, something really about a celebrity has just died or, you know, those types of stories. Um, I'm thinking of last week, for example, on Mashable, we did a story about um, Grenfell Tower. And I have to say, the last six weeks in terms of the news agenda, there's been one tragedy after another, and then we had the general election in Grenfell Tower and so many different instances. And with that really fast uh, news feed, there's also been a fast-paced misinformation spreading. And one of the stories that I can give you by way of example was there was a story being shared on Facebook which uh, had a URL that was metro.co.uk and it had the BBC breaking uh, image, placeholder image, as its thumbnail image. So it kind of like immediately kind of tries to trick you. So those are two things to, that you can look at straight away. And then when you click in on the article, I would say the best bit of it, uh, best tip I could give is read the article, right? <laughs> that sounds... Go past the headline. <laughs> read the article because when you read it, then you're going to see that there are quotes by somebody and they might be linked to, to other places, which will cross-reference that. Check the quote, put, copy and paste the quote if it's Sadiq Khan, for example, that was quoted in this Grenfell Tower uh, story. Put it, pop it into Google and just see, like, has that, been, has that been published anywhere else? Or has that been on the Met Police site or on his Twitter page? You know, I know this is the work of journalists as well, but there are things that we can do as individuals, not just as journalists, to fact check these things. Today you are the UK editor at Mashable, uh, where you're throwing loads of spaghetti at the wall, trying new things, you're being really creative. What's exciting you at the minute about digital publishing? So right now with Mashable UK, I'm really excited about Snapchat Discover. The Mashable already has an international offering on Discover. This year, we also started a UK and Ireland edition, which is actually really, really important. It's really important to serve audiences in specific regions. Yes, there is content that travels across the globe that is international, but it's still important to get the right tone, speak the language of the people that you're actually trying to serve, and also come up with stories and produce stories and tell stories that are relevant to that audience. So I'm super duper excited about that. It's a whole new way of offering stories to people. You know, um, we have animators, we have script writers. It's such a different way of scripting and you're also catering to a much younger audience as well. So it's completely different to any other proposition that I'm working on in Mashable um, and very, very exciting. Do you think that kind of hyper-local targeting of uh, consumers increases levels of trust and, and that a sense of authenticity around the news. Oh, absolutely. I definitely think there is a lot to be said for localism, and I think that it's a travesty that uh, local newspapers, for example, have been suffering as a result of you know, the, the proliferation of social media and digital media, because, uh, and not, not just because of that, but just, you know, the, the whole uh, fragmentation of media has changed, where local media has been on the demise which is not an absolute great shame. Um, if you think about some of the most important stories that have come out of the US, for example, think of the water crisis that happened in Flint, Michigan. If there actually was a more sustained local news presence in that region, that story would have like, would have hit the global consciousness 
much quicker than it did. It had to reach a point of absolute crises before anyone else paid any attention. And the same applies to our local areas. You know, we use uh, social media sites all the time to find out what's going on in my local area, what restaurants do I want to eat at, what is my local politician doing about the roads and the health, health facilities and the local schools. These are things that really matter to people. So it's really important that we try to preserve um, local news in some shape or form and I think that you know there are different ways that you could do it so yes I to answer your question I've gone on a long circuitous route to get there but yes I do I think that it's important it is very authentic and finally just um, just briefly what do you see as both the risks and the opportunities of digital media I would say, uh, and I would say this, that there are more opportunities than risks. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's such huge opportunities, there's huge ways to reach people uh, in different ways. You know, communicating with more proximity through technology and actually tapping into the emotional sensibilities of the human condition. And I think, you know, there's so many new inroads happening where if we can do that, also harness that type of technology with storytelling, the way in which you can reach people is very, very intimate, very personalised, very data-driven. But then, as you mentioned, there are risks that come with that. You know, right now, those kind of risks include uh, the algorithm, the echo chamber that we're all in, the potential uh, for us to become silos uh, where we're not looking outside of our own little bubble and then we see huge cultural shifts happening. Take the Brexit vote or the US elections. These big social changes are big political um, upsets, you could call them, uh, happen because people are not aware. And there are also risks around privacy, security, with you know, uh, new developments on Snapchat, for example. Lots of people are now talking about Snap Maps. And what does that mean for this, the privacy or the security of young people who are using that platform? The internet is a really bizarre place. And um, when I think of all of those stories that I just mentioned there, you know, Grenfell Tower, the Ariana Grande, the Manchester uh, concert, the tragedy there, the uh, London uh, bombing, the mosque attack, every single one of those stories had people intentionally spreading false information online. And so there's this human behavior that's happening on the internet that I think that we haven't fully grappled with. For example, people pretending that they had loved ones who were missing in uh, Grenfell Tower. And I just saw there in the news uh, a man had been charged with fraud because he was trying to raise money and get free accommodation in the aftermath of Grenfell Tower by falsely claiming that he was his family were part of the victims. So like, we need to do a lot more, I think, in terms of how people use the internet and educating them to have a bit more due diligence about the way in which they behave. Because there there's definitely a difference in the way people behave online than they do in real life. But again, I would still say it's about empowering yourself, informing yourself about how these spaces work so that then you can actually make the most of it. It's a bit like traveling to a new place. If you don't know the area that you're in, you don't know the different neighborhoods, you might feel a little bit scared of them. You might feel a bit scared of like people you don't know. But actually, if you go there and you get to know the place and you actually read up about it, you, you know the right streets to go on or you know the nice restaurants to go to, you're going to actually come to a much better and happier place. And I would use that analogy for the internet as well. It's also a space where there are harmful parts of it and there are also really enjoyable aspects. Fantastic. Anne-Marie Tomczak, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. 
That was Anne-Marie Tamchak, who is Mashable's editor in the UK. And it was such fun to meet her at InspireFest, as well as our 14 other speakers across this podcast. I can't believe we're already at the last episode. But hopefully through their stories and interviews, we have inspired you to take an interest in InspireFest. This episode was produced by Bureau. I've been Claire O'Connell. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, folks, that InspireFest 2018 is on June the 21st and 22nd in the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. So do go along to InspireFest.com and check out the speakers, book your tickets and come along because you won't regret a minute of it. There are not only the super speakers on stage, but also wonderful people go to InspireFest and there's a lot of events and it's a huge amount of fun. So come along. Nulafer Merchant was saying like you have to find your people and I think everyone at this conference is that like all the people here are my people who are interested in ideas and creativity and multidisciplinary thinking and it's just really exciting community to be part of. Hello, I'm Shane Bergen. I'm a physicist and I work in University College Dublin. And I'm Jane Chadwick. I'm a dormant volcanologist um, who's worked in education uh, for several years. And this is a clip of a podcast series that we've been making called 101 The Ways We Learn. It's a 10 part podcast series and we're going to be following people who are learning new things. And that gives us a wonderful opportunity to crack open learning and look at all the kind of gooey ingredients inside from behavioral science and psychology to neuroscience and really kind of find out whether there's any validity to those sort of old adages of can you teach an old dog new tricks? Absolutely. And learning is a really messy thing. And so we're happy to get involved there and do it in a really practical way. So we're going to be following people learning to cook, learning how to code, learning how to cycle, learning how to draw. And we can go on. We could have made 100 part uh, episodes uh, here, but we've, we've, we focus it on 10 things with people that we know. And so this is a short preview um, of Jessamine Fairfield learning to cycle, um, the first uh, in this series. So Jessamine's actually a really good friend of mine. Uh, she's a physicist. She works in NUI Galway. And strangely enough, she never learned to cycle when she was little. And so when we were thinking of people learning new things, this was a real obvious one, like learning to cycle a bike, right? It's something we've all done when we were little. Or it turns out, well, not everyone has. (laughs) And so Jessamine was willing to volunteer to be taught by a friend to learn how to cycle in a park in Dublin. I think so. What are the other ways that I could, you know? None. There are no other ways. It's very safe. Okay, now get on the bike. (laughs) Okay, so can you kind of hit the ground while sitting with your feet? Yeah, I'm just, like, I'm sitting on it, um, but my feet are still, like, flat on the ground. So I'm very comfortable with this because nothing is happening. So maybe just start scooting. Can you scoot? Can you define scooting (laughs) or scooting? So to scoot, I think just take your feet and push um, to Ah. move yourself forward. Yes. Okay. So you can even do it like walking. Imagine you're walking except you're sitting on a bike. I am walking except I'm sitting on a bike. You don't look silly at all right now. <laughs> I feel extremely silly right now. But okay. my feet are still kind of down on either side of the bike, so it's I don't feel that scared yet. Right. But I know what's coming. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> oh god, how do you turn a bike around? Uh, yeah, you're doing it. Oh. So right now, Jasmine is using her feet to push herself forward, almost like walking, um, except sitting on a bike. So 
Oh, oh, pedals. No, no, no. <laughs> it was just, it was just a, a joke. You I don't need to do put it. my feet on the you pedals. You can do it. Go ahead. Why not? No. Okay. I'm going to glide. Okay. So now when scoot. you're walking. So now I think what we are trying to do instead of getting sort of general comfort is trying to glide a little longer. So basically spend more time with your feet, not on the ground. Okay. So this is actually better. So when you're pointing in this direction, you're going downhill. Okay. So maybe you can get a little more speed without having to put your feet on the ground. Okay. Remember, you can go fast. It doesn't matter because if you feel unstable, you can just plant your feet on the ground. You're not going to fall. You're pretty much incapable of falling right now. That is a very strong statement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make you feel better. Come on, man. Okay. Okay. All right. So push and glide. Yes. Just lift your feet. I sort of am, but I keep like leaning go. to one side. You're doing it. Ooh. Okay, Woof. break. Woof. I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And that's uncomfortable because I suppose it is often uncomfortable to feel like you don't know what you're doing. Especially on something that, as previously discussed, most children can do. <laughs> but this is also exciting because I do want to know how to ride a bike. Which is why I agreed to do this. As I will remind myself now while we try to do <laughs> even more. Okay, just... Ready? Okay. How does that feel? Oh, it feels weird. It's like I'm gliding. Okay, I'm probably not gonna crash you into this plant. Okay, <laughs> now down. <laughs> Did I run you over? <laughs> I'm fine. Did, <laughs> okay. Did the first bike accident so, happen? No. So can you can you reproduce that speed but with just gliding, do you think? Maybe. I'm okay. observing Jasmine's confidence getting better. She's like she's clearly more stable on the bicycle holding it after like five minutes of playing with it, but um, I think we're about to have a breakthrough. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's just been a preview of 101, and we hope you'll hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Episode one is coming out in January, and uh, there'll be one every week. And you know what? We're really, really proud of the work we've been doing. We've had the opportunity to work with amazing people, amazing teachers, our producers at Bureau. And we hope that you'll get as much out of it as uh, we have in making it. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's for me, it's actually awoken a whole deeper appreciation of this amazing machine that I have, which is my brain um, and how it learns mundane things and spectacular things all with almost without me noticing yeah and as a scientist I, I find this so interesting because it's an area that we don't fully understand so like there's loads of different disciplines that have something to say about the way we learn there isn't a formula for learning and there's something innately human about that and something really special about it and so we hope to get lots of different perspectives in this podcast so that you too can appreciate the complexity of the human uh, in learning and to figure out a little bit about yourself as a learner too. In the meantime, you can find us in lots of places. We're at 101 The Podcast on social media. We're also 101thepodcast.com online. Um, and you can find us in whatever way you get your podcasts, um, whatever platform, in by searching 101 The Ways We Learn. This is a series that's supported by Science Foundation Ireland. And we really hope you hit subscribe so that you can hear just how Jessamine got on on riding her bike. <laughs>